0: Hello, and welcome back to the New River Church podcast. Today we're going to be starting a new series on the book of Luke called Jesus, the Inviting Messiah. We look forward to getting to know the gospel better together with you, and we hope that today's message encourages you and blesses you. For more information, check out newriverchurch.org. Hey, good morning. Good Good to see you. I have the wonderful pleasure of opening up God's Word this morning with you. So if you want to head over to the Gospel of Luke, we're in a series in the Gospel of Luke. And we're not going to go through the whole book of Luke, but basically we're going to try to take out passages in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is the host. He is an inviting Messiah. There's a lot of meals in Luke. I don't know if you ever knew that. So that's why I love it, <laughs> because it fits our, our, our church even, the, you know, because Jesus, Jesus loves eating. He's accused of even being a glutton and a drunkard because he was always eating and hanging out with people that he's not supposed to hang out with. And, and so what we're doing in our series is we're just going to take some of those passages and uh, meet the inviting Messiah who invites us to his table, to his heart. And so one passage like that is Luke chapter 5. So if you want to head over to Luke 5, verse 17 to 26, Jesus is a host. Well, this is kind of a unique hosting situation because somebody crashes his meeting. (laughs) So Jesus' invitation is open to all. There's room for anyone, right? Come as you are. But what happens when someone breaks protocol? And procedure, crashes your meeting because they're just desperate to get to you. They show up messy and needy and full of shame to stares and furrowed brows around them because you've just disrupted everything. Will Jesus welcome someone like that too? Absolutely. Luke 5, 17. I'm reading from ESV. I'll put it up on the screen. On one of those days, as he was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with him to heal and behold some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is God's Word. I want to look at it from three angles this morning. We're going to look at the man on the mat. We're going to look at the roof-crashing sacred companions. And then we're going to look at an unpredictable Savior. All right. Man on the mat, roof-crashing sacred companions, and an unpredictable Savior. So let's start with the man on the mat, verses Verse 17. And 18. Okay, so let's set the context here. Jesus has shown up proclaiming good news. In chapter 4, he says, I, sh- I have come to bring good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, verse 16. And uh, then he demonstrates it. Right? He's not just talking the talk. I'm going to show you through my preaching, my teaching. I'm going to cast out demons. I have authority over the supernatural. I'm going to heal. I'm going to bring some fish onto a boat. I have authority over the natural. I got authority over all of these things because the kingdom of God is here. The king is here. He's broken through. It's a new day. So now we have our text in verse 17. One of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there and they had come from every village in Galilee. This is, I think he's slightly exaggerating, but he's trying to to show uh, who's there. Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So the place is packed. Word has spread about Jesus. People have come from pretty much just about everywhere with every kind of need. So can you imagine it? People are jammed in the doorways. Kids are sitting on the windows. Uh, Mark tells us this happened in a town called Capernaum. And an average Capernaum home, you can probably have at most 50 people. And that's if you're squished together, right? And so there's not a lot of space. Everyone's kind of squished together. Latecomers are wedged into the entrance. They're standing on tiptoes, right? you got three groups of people. you got the seekers. They just want healing or help. you got the spectators watching the show. And then you have spies, the Pharisees and scribes, waiting for Jesus to make a mistake. Uh, Luke five seventeen to six eleven is is a collection of there's five controversial stories of Jesus versus the religious establishment. This is the beginning. These, the religious establishment, they are the Bible teachers of their day, and they are there to police anyone who wasn't following the rules that they came up with. And notice, they're sitting. They're sitting, they got seats. But the desperate and needy paralytic we're gonna meet does not have a seat, does not have a place. And I had to stop for a moment and I had to pray, Lord, let me never get in the way of someone coming to Jesus. I don't want to be that person. Hogging up a seat and blocking the way. Luke also has this interesting phrase here, verse 17, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. That doesn't mean that sometimes the power of the Lord is with him, sometimes the power of the Lord is not with him. What it's highlighting is the power that flows out of Jesus that brings healing is the power of God himself. God himself is in the midst. And look how sad this is. You got all the Bible scholars. How can you have all of this doctrine, all of this Bible knowledge, and still not have the power of God because you did not recognize the presence of God in your midst. Can that happen? Yes, that happens all the time. You can have it all up here and miss the whole thing. Jesus is sitting there right there with the presence of God and the power of God with him. And they, like let's look at the scripture. And they have totally missed it. All right, verse 18, we're gonna meet the man on the mat. Uh, Luke uses the word bed, but I like the word mat because it, it works well with my point. Man on the mat—it's <laughs> alliterated. Um, okay, preachers got to preach. Um, that morning, man on the mat, how did he wake up? On his back, with bed sores, as he stares blankly at the ceiling of his room that he can never ever get out of, in a body that's held in prisoner. There are no neurosurgeons around. You don't got physical therapists, specialists, miracle drug on the horizon. We don't know. Was was this dude born this way? Did it happen later in life? We don't know. He's got no money. He's got no job. He's got no influence. Probably begging on the side of the street. Uh, In fact, in Rome during the 5th century BC, there was a statute on the books. If you find a deformed child, quickly Kill. In Israel, the stigma was, well, this guy must have been caught up in some sin. Or his parents were caught in some sin. That's why this is the punishment. He's got paralysis. So there he lays on the mat. Again, we don't know how, how, how he became paralyzed, but he's there. Uh, author Ken Geyer says he's got to rely on others for everything. For every sip of water, every bite of food, every time his bladder needed relief, Somebody else has to to turn him, to bathe him, to clothe him. So dependency, humiliation, confinement, boredom, loneliness, frustration, shame, despair. I think these are just a few of the entries in the thesaurus that that defines him now, that defines his life on a three-by-six-foot mat. John Orberg, in his book, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, says this, everybody's got a mat. In other words, your brokenness and imperfection or the thing about you that's not normal, that's your mat. Maybe it's your out-of-control temper, you lashing out at the people that's closest to you. Maybe it's your fear. Man, you love hearing stories about other people's courage. The reality is when you're alone, you freak out a lot. Maybe your Matt's guilt and shame. You know, guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. Uh, it, shame, I think, is Brene Brown, I think she says it's really fear. Shame is this fear that I am unlovable. And that's your mat. And it thrives in secrecy, in silence, in self-hate and self-condemnation. Maybe your mat is this crushing sense of failure or inadequacy or loneliness. Maybe you're on the mat today and you're like, I'm on the mat today because I've been wounded and somebody put me on the mat. And they got off scot-free and here I am still on my back trying to make it. And we do a lot of mat management, don't we? We pretend we don't have a mat. I like to appear strong and competent, and I love helping other people's mats. You may even have the gift of mat identification of other people's mats. You're really good at that, but you never reveal your own. See, it's not that you're carrying this mat around. This mat is carrying you around. It's defined you. It's the bed you sleep on every night. I was reading this journal entry from um, author Henry Nowen. It he just kind of stopped me in, your, in my tracks. Have you ever read something? And then all of a sudden, it's, it's like it goes 3D, HD, 4K, 8K, whatever. And it's just like, wait, is God talking to me right now? Well, I was reading a journal entry, and, and look what he—let's share what he said. Henry Nowen said he, he found himself fatigued, and it, it was happening every time he was ministering to people. <laughs> And then he brought it up to his good friend, John. And John recommended, well, maybe, you know, I, I, I hear you're not getting sleep, enough sleep. Maybe you should get more sleep. And then he said, but I also noticed this about you, Henry. It sounds like you put too much energy into any encounter as if you have to prove each time all over again that you are worth being with. Mm -hmm. called out my mat right there. The Lord called out my mat right there that I am worth being with. Man, I read that out loud and I had to stop and follow my knees. And Jesus said, bring that to me. Bring that to me because my gospel proves you are worth being with. And I I had to bring that mat to him. See, I... And you keep telling yourself, I have to just get over this. This is this mad. I just got to get over it. But that's a lie. And look, Jesus, look in the room right here. Jesus is there with power in his hands and grace in his heart. And twice, Luke says, they were trying to get this man before Jesus. Do you see that phrase? Before Jesus, verse 18. Through the tiles, into the midst, verse 19. Before Jesus. Why? The point, point is, if Jesus has power in his hands and grace in his heart, I don't need to get over something. I need to get through to Jesus. On, reach I, I gotta get through to him because only he's got the power in his hands and grace in his heart. So what is your mat that's carrying you? What is the mat that's carrying you today? Right. Secondly, we looked at the man on the mat. Uh, The Roof Crashing Sacred Companions. Sometimes we don't have it. We don't have it to get to Jesus. And like the Beatles would say, we get by with a little help from our friends. That's right. So look at verse 19. Finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed, through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So here come our four friends. Mark 2 tells us there were four guys. This is the Fellowship of the Matt, right here. I'm gonna call them sacred companions, and I'll tell you why I'm calling them sacred companions. Now, by the way, we don't know whose house this was. Some say this was Peter's house or Peter's mother in law's house because he was there previously. Uh, some say Jesus had his own little house. We don't know. Doesn't really say. Are these four guys his family? Doesn't say. Um, maybe friends. I wanna say they're friends. He would. What a great small group life group right here, these four guys. So here they are trying to wedge their way in. They're carrying this their friend through to the small house. There's a wall of flesh. They can't get in. What's going to happen? Do we get in or do do we give up? And then this is how I imagine it. One of the friends says, "Hey, if we take those stairs right up there, there's the roof." The sloping flat roof in those days consisted of wooden cross beams overlaid with a matting of reeds, palm branches, dried mud, and tiles. All told, the roof was about two feet thick. So you could dig into the earthen roof without causing irreparable damage. All right? So those of you right now thinking, man, did that happen in my house? Right? Like if you're putting yourself in the homeowner's sandals right now and you are thinking that's vandalism... And who's going to fix that? And uh, should I call Jake from State Farm or somebody's got to come in and call Like, it can be easily repaired, okay? It's gonna, and I wonder if the, guy, if the dude came back later and fixed it. I don't know, but uh, it can be easily repaired. So with their adrenaline pumping, they, gotta, they make this hole and they lower it, their friend. Just picture yourself in the room right now. All conversation ceases. Jesus himself stops talking, Everyone's looking up now. There's a hole in the ceiling. Four pairs of hands are rooting around, making the hole bigger. Debris is falling everywhere. And you can just picture the scribes are like, I got dirt on my robes, Uh, shaking the dirt off. Everybody's in shock as this paralytic man now lies in front of Jesus, all because of some roof-crashing sacred companions. I love these guys. Can we just talk about them for a second? Um, This is a picture of people on mission. Pastor Ray Orland says, how many more spiritually paralyzed people in this poor world will get to Jesus if Christians would unite together in this loving work? What roof-bursting determination from these guys. I love their creativity. Right? We need more innovation to get people to Christ. I love... Their creativity, their persistence, their selfless love for their friend. And I'm going to call them sacred companions. A sacred companion is more than a friend. A psychologist, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, okay, says family is this. He defines family this way. A group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. An irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. Key word there, it's irrational. Like Communities that are great are communities where people carry mat, other people's mats and crash through roofs without ever asking the question, what's in it for me? Look, they have seen this guy at his worst, and they cared for him. It's so vulnerable to have someone carry your mat. When someone's carrying your mat, they see you in your weakness. Uh, Oxford psychologist Robin Dunbar says, the majority of people can only handle intimacy with one to three people. What what she's saying is, you just need one or two real sacred companions. Not everybody needs to be invited into that space in your life. And the main quality of a sacred companion, and I'm going to use David Benner's phrase, soul hospitality. They offer soul hospitality. It's the gift of safety. Think of feeling safe enough with another person that without weighing words or measuring thoughts, you can pour yourself out, trusting that the other person will keep what is worth keeping and with a breath of kindness. Blow the rest away. That's a sacred companion. They make room for your pain and vulnerability without judgment. I mean, really, what's in it for them? (laughs) They can get embarrassed, people are all looking at them. This is soul hospitality, but that's not all. These sacred companions also want to bring you to Jesus. Right? These are the guys. You see a closed door. That's all you see when when you're on your back, and you see a closed door. But you got some sacred people who say, "Brother, there's an open roof. And if it's not open, we're going to open it because we're going to get you to Jesus somehow. We're going to get you to Jesus. See, they they knew they had to get him to Jesus. So they were same direction. They also knew each one had a responsibility. What was their responsibility? Hold up your corner. That's it. A sacred companion holds up their their corner to carry you. They could differentiate between what they're responsible for and what they're not responsible for. They are not responsible. These guys knew. We're not responsible for healing him. All we can do is bring you to the person who can heal you. We can't save anyone, but we can hold up our corner by loving people with the love of Christ. Yes, Lord. Imagine the four dudes, okay? Imagine one was 6'4", and the other guy's 5'2". <laughs> the third guy and the fourth guy, they're 5'10". <laughs> One's got to bend down. The other's got to stretch. Each one needed the other. And they all had to work together. Just hold up their corner. And you can't have love without humility. So they're all going to work together. Man. Do you have people like that? Do you have sacred companions who could offer you soul hospitality? Who can carry you to Jesus? Are you a sacred companion to someone? And you might be like, well... I would, but I trusted somebody with my mat. A spouse, a parent, a friend, church leader, anybody really. And they're supposed to care for you. And instead of lowering you down to the foot of Jesus, they cut the rope and left you free falling in the open sky, down on the ground. And it shattered you even further. I've been there. That is betrayal, pain, and disillusionment. And as I was preparing this message, I, that all came flooding back for a second there. I had to pause. And I remember I just, right there, just, Lord, they were supposed to care for me. They cut the rope, Lord. And you know, without, without a, not an instant, the Lord just chimed right in and said, yes, but where did you land? At my feet. And I resurrected you. So yeah, if you feel like somebody cut the rope and you fell and you're shattered and you're like, my sacred companions did that. <laughs> they said they were. Some sacred companions, they were. Listen, this morning, you're still at fallen. you've fallen at the feet of Jesus. And he's not going to leave you there. The presence of God was there to heal, to resurrect, to change the narrative, to write a new story. It happened at his feet. So C.S. Lewis says, God always allows us to feel the frailty of human love. So you'll appreciate the strength of his love. It's his love because human love can kill you. But God's love can breathe life and resurrect you. Now, if you don't have any sacred companions, maybe you can be available to someone in solidarity to be one, and it'll come back to you. See, solidarity just means it's a shared pain, shared growth, shared hope. That's how you be one. That's how you be a sacred companion. I'm going to share your pain with you. I'm going to offer hospitality to your pain. I want to grow with you, as I also have my own (laughs) mat... And together, shared hope. And the more deeply you listen to the story God's writing in your life, the more you can have grace and empathy when pain visits other people's stories. Those are the greatest secret companions are those who are walking with a limp. (sighs) Because they too have been fallen and resurrected. And they have grace and empathy when you fall and need a hand. All right, it's not easy. Some of our mats are heavy and awkward, and there's a roof or barrier of busyness and conflict that needs to be crashed through. But my whole point is, I could not have found wholeness and healing on my own. God brought sacred companions along my journey. You need roof-crashing, sacred companions who care and want to bring you to Jesus. All All right, amen. Lastly the unpredictable Savior. So we got the man on the mat. We got the roof-crashing friends, sacred companions. Now we have the unpredictable Savior, verses 20 to 26. So here we are, Jesus' gaze. This man is now lying at his feet. And you know, preachers can get touchy if they're interrupted. (laughs) So how will Jesus respond to the group of folks here who's caused this scene? And this dude... Man, you got courage to show up and let yourself be seen like this. So what does Jesus do? Verse 20, when he saw their faith. Wait a minute. Is that a typo? The healing is tied to the person needing healing. Did you see that? Their faith. What? Jesus looks up and he sees... Four dusty, sweaty, anxious, yet hopeful faces looking down from a hole in the roof. And look, there's no record they said anything. So it wasn't what Jesus heard that captured his heart. It was what he saw. He saw family, an irrational commitment of a few for the well-being of their friend. And that just moves him. Now, the they includes not just the four guys, but includes the guy on the mat. So, yeah, it's his faith too that he saw. Now, can our faith save another? No, it's not teaching that. Scripture teaches each person has to confess Jesus to be Lord, to be saved. It's personal. So, my question then is, how does a group of people's faith work in God's mind in a situation like this? I don't know. Maybe us preachers need to say that more often. I don't know. But I do know, apparently, Jesus loves and honors a community like that. He finds a community like that beautiful. And then he says something unpredictable out of his mouth. again. Man your sins are forgiven you. Okay, he's not saying the reason for his sickness was because of his sin. In one sense, it's true. Sickness is in this world because sin has come into the world. But he's, I don't know if I can make a direct correlation here that he committed some sin that led to paralysis, maybe. But that's not, I don't think that's the case. However, this is a huge letdown and disappointment. I need my legs back and you're like, you're forgiven of your sin. <laughs> what is, why does Jesus say that? What he's saying is, listen, you think you know the main problem of your life, but you don't. You have underestimated the depths of the lo- your longings. You're not going deep enough. You think your main need is working legs. But your main need is having a true reason to dance. And that's through forgiveness of sins. Jesus sees the paralysis is deeper than it appears. He's, the emaciated body lies, a, within the emaciated body lies a crippled, crippled soul, paralyzed from sin, atrophied from shame. The paralytic might be thinking all of his life, if I could walk, i would just be, I'll be happy. If I could, then I'll be. Now, what would happen if Jesus just healed him and let him go? What would happen? It would be euphoria, right? There would be a party. He would dance. He would say, I could walk. I won't be unhappy ever again. Um, give it a couple months. The roots of human discontentment runs deep, deeper than we think. The euphoria is not going to last. And finally, he will die into a Christless eternity. That's a rotten joke. And Jesus is not going to play that joke on him. The main problem in our life is never our suffering. The problem under the problem is living a life of self on the throne. That's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is, I know what's good for me more than God does. When self is on the throne, that's what's causing all of our disappointment. And we feel in life, we've confused our wants with our needs. We've not gone deep enough. So are there things like the paralytic? You say, if I had that, we think, okay, then I'll be filled the empty spaces of my heart. Jesus would say, those are legs. I would love to give that to you. But it's not deep enough. you got to have a joy and reason to dance. We need a Savior who doesn't give us just what we want. We need a Savior who can see past my want and meet my deepest need. He's unpredictable. And now we got another problem. Actually, we've got a couple of problems. First of all, how can Jesus grant this man forgiveness without repentance? Right? Isn't it like, Lord, I am a sinner and I have sinned. And Jesus says, you're forgiven. Repentance, forgiveness. Jesus doesn't say, your sins are forgiven if. He just blurts out, man, your sins are forgiven you. What? Well, verse 22 gives us the clue. The Pharisees are questioning in their minds. Verse 22, When Jesus perceived their thoughts, oh, he could read your thoughts. He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? You see, he sees the heart of the scribes. If he sees the heart of the scribes, what else does he see? The heart of the paralytic. There, There must have been Uh, inarticulate cry in this man's heart for mercy and grace. Do you know what that tells you? What does that tell you? That tells you his love goes so deep, that he is so loving, he is so gracious, he is so eager to pardon us, to embrace us, and forgive us, that he even responds to the smallest, tiniest, imperfect, weak groans of our heart that our mouths don't even know how to utter, and he comes to you pouring out his grace. Even all you can give him is the smallest and tiniest of opening. That is a huge comfort to me, loved ones. I am thankful that when I am slow to repent, when I am blind in my sin, and my mouth can't even articulate all that I'm struggling with and all of my neediness, I have a Savior who is eager to pour overwhelming and overflowing grace into the smallest openings of my heart. It's the heart of the, prodigal, the father of the prodigal son. Before he even could utter a word, he's already running towards him. It's not the quality of your faith that saved you. And it's not the quality of your faith that is sustaining you. It is the object of your faith. A small faith in a big savior is enough. That's enough. And while heaven's rejoicing, the religious leaders, like Ken Geyer says, are too busy scribbling mental notes (laughs) to join in on the dance. And so look at what they say. Verse 21 who is this that speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Um, that's right. Look at this. They have intellectually figured it out. Their reasoning is correct. They, it, it, their reasoning brought them to the right conclusion, but it did not bring them to Christ. Right? The hole in the roof tells you, scribes and Pharisees, it's faith... That brings someone to Christ, not intellectual reasoning. And you're not getting faith in faith. I just got to have a lot of faith. I'm going to have a lot of faith. Give me faith, faith, faith. No, faith is what you look through to something. There's an object there, right? If I walked around looking at my glasses all day long, you would think I'm really weird. The glasses aren't to be looked at. It's to look through. to look through. And your faith is to look through onto Jesus. And if you're barely hanging on and you are trying to get to Jesus, that's all he's looking for. That's all he's looking for. And so Jesus, knowing the hearts of the Pharisees and scribes, asks this question, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or rise and walk? Hmm. What is easier to say? Well, both are impossible to do unless you're God. However, from a human perspective, it's harder to say get up and walk because if he doesn't get up and walk, right, you're going to be ridiculed as the speaker, right? If you say, okay, I forgive you of your sins, you can't prove that. How do you prove that? You can't see somebody forgiven of their sins. So the scribes would say, well, it's easier to declare forgiveness, though it's blasphemy, Anyone can declare it because it's invisible. Well, Jesus says, okay, listen. To show you, I am the Son of Man, which just means he has honor and power. He's the Lord from heaven, with all authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, to, he says I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. Because what Jesus is saying is, if Jesus can perform the bodily miracle, he's claiming authority to perform the spiritual miracle as well. So Jesus does the harder thing in human eyes to prove the less difficult thing. So the man is healed. Can you just imagine him? He he must, this is how I pictured him. He must have gotten up initially stumbling, wobbling like a newborn colt, you know? And then he starts walking, heaves his mat over his shoulder, praising God, out the door, running. Luke 5, 25 to 26, they, everybody is, he's out goes throughout, out the door. That obstacle that was there before is now his passageway. He easily walks through. Everyone's like, what? Awe oh, and wonder at his sight. But did you notice at the end there, Jesus told him to take his mat home. Did you see that? Pick up your mat and go home. And then Luke adds, he picked up what he had been lying on. And went home. So my question was, bro, what are you going to do with that thing now? Like whoa, whoa. The mat that carried him all, all his life, he now carries. And I wonder if he's going to keep it in his bedroom or <laughs> the rest of his life. I, I wonder. I wonder if now on, He's gonna carry others on that mat, that same mat, and bring them to Jesus. You see, I love that he has his, he's, carry, he's carrying her on his mat. I love it. Because the, see, the brokenness and the pain that once held you down on your back, redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, is the very thing he's gonna use. Amen. Amen? He's going to use the actual thing that was holding you down all this time. Your pain has a purpose. Nothing is wasted because when you come to Jesus, he not only changes your identity, he restores your dignity. And he repurposes what was once your deformity, what the enemy had intended for evil. Your deformity is now turned into a new destiny and a new purpose. So you're no longer lost, but now you're found. You're no longer orphaned. You're now a child of God. You're no longer wrecked by your sin, but now you're redeemed. You're no longer empty, but now you're filled by the Spirit. You were no longer captive to that thing. You were free. You were once on your back, but now you're on your feet. And you were aimless, but now you're an ambassador. You were once dead, but now you've come alive. That's what's happened. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And can you picture him and his four buddies dancing on the street with the joy of heaven streaming down their cheeks and because through the roof came the glory of the kingdom of God glinting from the crown of their king into the life of one broken man through some crazy friends. (laughs) And I wonder that night if he slept outside. Because all his life, all he saw was a ceiling. And that night when he closed his eyes, he saw the stars. God's roof. And when he looked up at God's roof, he realized it's not his friends that burst through the roof to get to Jesus. Jesus burst through heaven to get to him. That's what's going on here. Because you know what? In three years from this story, Jesus will trade places with the paralytic. See, do you realize the only way for this man and you and me to have a reason to dance, for our legs to move again, the legs of our heart to come alive again, the only way for that to happen is if Jesus' legs are nailed to a cross his own legs, he will be immobile. His back will be attached to a cross stretched out from limb to limb. They've traded places. So yeah, scribes, come back scribes. I want to change that. It's going to be harder to forgive sins actually because it's going to cost Jesus his life. And you have a Savior, loved ones, who is far more determined and far stronger than these wonderful men who burst through a roof to get to Jesus. Jesus burst through heaven and earth to get to you and me. See, what's, they, these dudes were unstoppable. You know what's more unstoppable? Is the love that will stop at nothing to bring about our salvation and bring us to heaven. And that's why we could dance again. That is it. So in the presence and in the person of Jesus Christ, God lowers himself into the abyss of our sin and suffering where we were trapped to save us, to save you, and to save me. So today, I can run into his arms. He, yes. he bursts through heaven to come to me. That means there's no mat that I'm carrying that's too awkward or too heavy. Yes. There is nothing that was done to me that is too traum- too much trauma that he can't handle. What more does he have to do to show you that he loves you? Not, you don't need, it's not the strength of your faith, but it is the indestructible, roof-bursting faithfulness of Jesus for you. You have a Savior who leads you in ways you could have never guessed, into situations you could have never expected, to fulfill purposes for you you could have never imagined. Thanks for joining us again this week. We hope that this message truly blessed you. For more information, check us out at newriverchurch.org.